You are listening to Pod Bless Canada, the McDonald Laurier's Institute Premier Public Policy Podcast. My name is Ivan Lau, and I'm the Communications Officer at the McDonald Laurier Institute. Today, I'm joined by Chemi Lamo, who is a former student president of the University of Toronto Scarborough campus and a Canadian Tibetan. All politics, including student government politics, are not immune to the usual mudslinging that intensifies during elections. However, the political firestorm that engulfed the newly elected student president, Chemi, was simply not normal. The day she had learned she was elected president, her phone rang incessantly with notifications after notifications. But rather than being greeted with well wishes and congratulations, her social media was flooded with hateful and harassing comments rife with anti-Tibetan sentiment from pro-Beijing supporters. Some comments were even threatening. There was a petition that amassed nearly 10,000 signatures calling for Chemi to step down and a message posted to WeChat, a Chinese mobile service app, called on Chinese international students to stop her from becoming president. Despite notifying the university of her concerns for her safety, little has been done to address the intimidation Chemi has faced. On today's podcast, Chemi and I will be discussing the events surrounding her election and why the government of Canada should be paying attention to this issue. Welcome to the podcast, Chemi. It's a pleasure. Thank you. First, tell us a bit about yourself and what you do. Hello, everyone. Uh, it's an honor to be here today joining you. My name is Chimmy Lomo, and I am a Tibetan Canadian that moved to Canada when she was 11. I've lived about half my life in India as a stateless refugee and then here in Canada as a Parkdalian, a very proud Parkdalian in Toronto. I'm currently pursuing my undergraduate degree at the University of Toronto Scarborough. Although I'm studying neuroscience and psychology at school, my passion has always been with international development, international relations, because there was this idea of home uh, that always intrigued me growing up in India, like I mentioned, as a Tibetan, but as a stateless refugee, this concept of home was something that I always questioned because people would always ask, you know, where are you from? I would say, uh, well, you know, I was born in India, but uh, I'm actually Tibetan. And they ask, what does Tibet look like? And having no answers growing up was definitely something that I faced. And I continue to look for the answer of where home truly is. And I would love to go back to a more free and autonomous Tibet someday. And I would say that's a little bit about myself. So why did you decide to run for student president at the U of T? So since I was 13, I was involved with various not-for-profit organizations for the answers of the questions that I had about my identity, about home, about the struggles that we faced in my family and my community, and not knowing why we were facing so many issues, I was constantly looking for answers in these different organizations. I found different communities like Students for Free Tibet, the Canadian Tibetan Association of Ontario, you know, different opportunities that arose that allowed me to get involved. Soon, very soon, I became an organizer within the Tibetan community. I became from a volunteer to a lead chanter to then becoming the organizer. And through these various experiences of organizing within the Tibetan community, I have realized around my university years that a lot of the challenges that we were facing within the Tibetan community, I started to realize that there were a lot of parallels within a lot of the different communities that existed in my university. There were so many parallels into the way we were living our lives. And hence, using my experience that I've been able to have I was able to gain a lot of skills and experiences through my community that I thought would be beneficial 
in the other communities. And soon I was able to take up more leadership positions at U of T, whether it was the racial student collective coordinator or the vice president equity. And then soon I had students from different communities encouraging me to run for presidency. And I did. When you were elected, you faced some of the most hateful and harassing comments on social media. And, you know, there was a petition that amassed nearly 10,000 signatures. Who is this group that was targeting you? It was quite the experience, to be honest. Imagine being a stateless refugee and because of the illegal occupation of your own country, you've had to move several countries to find a better home, a safer home for your kids and their future. And that's the case for a lot of Canadians that have immigrated here. And that was the story for my parents. And having their child go to U of T and take up a lot of leadership positions and then be targeted by so-called, most likely crafted by the Chinese Communist Party when I ran for student elections, I can't even start to imagine what they had to go through. To answer your question, I always say that it was most likely crafted by the Chinese Communist Party because of the way the attacks came in. It started off, it truly never really had a ongoing pattern in my case, because in University of Toronto, Scarborough, I have taken various leadership positions, uh, like I was mentioning earlier. And during those times, I've never had any sort of systemic or like a, a huge attack the way I had to go through about a year ago. In the time of my elections, it was almost so sudden, like as if they were being instructed by a bigger entity and they were equipped with so many other things to sort of strategically bully and intimidate me into stepping down. And that was in so many ways, like you mentioned, there was a petition, there was also all of this online harassment, degrading comments about my physical outlooks, but it was also included death threats and rape threats and not just against me, but it was about my family as well. And I still remember, you know, reading comments like your mom is dead and being at work serving the student body. I had to call my mom to check in, but not scare her by letting her know what I was going through. So I had to call her to be like, hey, is everything okay? Just checking in. And she thought it was so weird that I was calling her. Being in these type of situations, you know, it was definitely not something that I would wish for any Canadian or anybody to go through. And along with the threats, there were also entities from my own university that I've had chats with, like both clubs, organizations, and also students, international Chinese students that I've had chats with personally. And I would also say were my friends who literally turned around 180 to a point where they would Instagram DM me and asking me for official statement and my stance on Tibet. It was almost like they were getting bullied into, you know, bullying me. And there was a bigger bully in, uh, in the back end. And hence why, you know, whenever anyone asks me who was behind this, I always say it's most likely crafted by the CCP because we know that organizations like uh, CSSA, Chinese Students of Scholars Associations, or Confucius Institute that are present in different universities, they have very strong ties with the Chinese embassy. We have proof that has been given out in the media time and time again across North America and, you know, a lot of schools in the U.S. Chinese international students who've been pressured by the embassy to follow the party line, to not speak out about any policies that critique the Chinese government or even get politically involved. So 
I personally did not take any investigation on to see if there was a direct link with the CCP, but that was a decision that I made as a student leader because I also represent the international Chinese students and their safety was also a priority for me. However, I think many Canadians can tell based on the proof that has been presented along with other cases that happened during the time that I was going through this. At McMaster University, Rukaya, a Uyghur activist, also went through something similar at an event, and she had proof about WeChat messages that were being sent from the embassy that linked to the Chinese international students. You had said something that caught my interest, but you said it was really sudden. So you had no inkling of any sort of intimidation or harassment that you would face when you got elected. No, definitely not. I remember doing interviews right after all of this blew up. I had barely slept during the whole week. It's been go, 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 especially during student elections. Campaigning was every single day for three long days. And right when I thought, you know, holy, I will, here's to sleep. Like I'm going to get, I'm finally going to get more than two to three hours of sleep. On the last day, which was February 8th, I still recall. I took a nap. I went to work at 9 a.m. And at 12 o'clock during my lunch, I remember my phone just going off. I was definitely not expecting what had happened to come through or happen to me. It was all of a sudden. And I mean, sometimes I wish that I had a little bit more time to prepare myself mentally. Because right after that, I thought, you know, I would get some sleep. But I definitely did not because then the interview started. Then, you know, catching up with media and trying to figure out what was actually happening and connecting with different organizations about support. And then my physical safety was under threat, not just mine, but anyone who was around me. Because throughout the year, I had people watching me, constantly taking pictures around my campus a constant surveillance of some sort happening. So the online harassment eventually stopped within a month or two, or at least the extreme harassment, right, stopped within a month or two because of the international media attention that I received. We had coverage from across the world, even in Korea, of course, Taiwan, Hong Kongers, India, and then we had a lot of supporters from Nepal and Bhutan across North America and Europe as well. So there was a lot of coverage in international news. And also I had a lot of supporters supporting me on my social media accounts. So that put a stop to the crafted bullying or intimidation tactics online. However, throughout the year, because I didn't step down and I won my student presidency, I was serving as president throughout the year. And I constantly had student groups that were trying to raise awareness about Hong Kong and Taiwan, constantly self-censoring themselves because of what happened to me. And seeing that definitely broke my heart because that meant that, you know, their intimidation tactics were working. Although it didn't work on me, it definitely did serve as a warning to those students, which really broke my heart because they're in Canada and, you know, students who are on my campus should feel safe enough because they go to an institution that proudly claims that they're, you know, the best institution in Canada or based on rankings, they love to pride themselves saying that they're the first ranked university in Canada. And so if that is the case, then where are the values? Are we going to at least make a statement about cyberbullying or at least make a you know, put on an investigation about foreign influences within our institution. Are we going to relook at how much money and influence does this institution or specific entity have on our campus because of just monetary value? 
intimidation tactics definitely came to an end within that month or so. However, the everlasting effects, I would say, continues. And as you can see within the geopolitics situation, China continues to grow influence. You saw that recently with the national security law, their crackdown on Hong Kong, and not to mention all the lies about COVID-19, which has caused a lot of deaths because of the lies specifically about containing the virus. And so what happened to me and within my campus truly serves as a microcosm of what is happening with China, uh, Chinese government's sentiments. They're definitely not scared to not only intimidate or try to bully somebody in China, but also in other countries where we have full expression of freedom and freedom of academic rights, right? Even though it stopped within that month, their intimidation tactics and their other ways of using their sharp power has not ended because throughout the end of my term as well, um, just a couple months ago, I had students who would constantly be taking pictures of um, me and whoever I was speaking with. So if any other Asian entity uh, was speaking to me, you would often find other uh, international Chinese students, again, you know, from the corners taking pictures and coming into the office and asking questions about other Asian students that are coming in and speaking to me. So that constant surveillance had not ended on my campus. And then because of COVID, everything had gone online. That's sort of the end of it as of right now. You know, when I listen to your story of you running for student president, while your experience with organizing and leadership positions within the Tibetan community has helped shape your run for student president, but it sounds like that when you ran for student president, you had done it with the agenda of helping all students on campus. So then why do you think they targeted you? So that's a great question because... That's something that actually confused me for a really long time of the time that this was happening. I actually had international students and international student rights on my platform in terms of my platform campaign points. We were advocating for that include, you know, all international students. And I also had international Chinese students during my campaign who asked me questions about what I would do for international students. And I had students who actually went and voted for me. It was only the last day, the last day in the sense that the voting just had ended. And then before the results had come out, where messages were circulated on WeChat, don't know who, and then a petition came up. And once that was circulated, then the influx of the harassment and the bullying and all of the threats started coming in. And then sentiments such as, oh, we don't want her as our president because she's not going to represent us. You know, it was interesting that none of these questions about my ability to lead ever came up. And even more ironic that I serve the position of vice president equity, that representing 14,000 undergraduate students and challenging anyone, and especially the institution themselves, about their policies that were forgetting about the voiceless or forgetting about our equity deserving groups. And so no questions ever came up during that time. And I'm very open about my Tibetan identity. The question about home has always lingered in me. And so I'm not afraid to express what I have found out or what I know about my identity. So for example, every Wednesday, I wear my traditional clothing as a way of preserving my culture for myself. Since high school, when I went to Park Tech Collegiate Institute, I started wearing my chupa, which is the traditional Tibetan dress every Wednesday. 
And so all my undergraduate years as serving different leadership positions, I was at Frosh, which is the orientation for first years on Wednesday with my chupo on. Of course, I color coordinated it with the Froshies that came. A lot of the first years that are entering University of Toronto for the first time knew, oh, there's a, you know, vice president of equity on our campus who wears a traditional clothing every Wednesday. And so with that type of presence on campus, I'm really surprised that nobody had anything to say to me in regards to my Tibetan activism or my Tibetan advocacy work within the community prior to the day of, I guess, bullying or intimidation. I've noticed there have been increasing concerns about the Chinese Communist Party's reach into our academic institutions, and you had notified the university about your concerns, but did they take any steps to address this? Mm-hmm. So I want to acknowledge the privilege that I had, actually, because I served as a student leader. I had access to all of the top heads of the university prior, and I was able to get directly through to them when I was going through this situation. Initially, when I did report it to campus police, my first experience of it was actually a campus police coming to us and being like, so what do you want me to do? So you're scared? And the way he spoke to me actually very much infuriated the president of that time, which is my predecessor, and also the staff that was working at my office, because they actually started crying because of the response that campus police was giving. Because right before, you know, I reported to campus police, we actually had other international Chinese students come into the office looking for me. And so they were scared for me and for my life. And here the campus police is saying, oh, so you're intimidated, but all of it is online, right? And He's, you know, just diminishing the whole idea of a serious threat. And so he left, you know, taking down some notes in his little uh, notepad and left. And because of how he dealt with the situation, we automatically directly called the head of safety at U of G. Because we've worked with him before, he, you know, came just hours right after to see me and ask me questions about it. And he, he also did not realize the seriousness of this issue where he mentioned well, you know, there's about 2,000 comments right now and kind of broke it down to me as if like, you know, can we be realistic? Like we only have one person maybe in Toronto police that can translate half of the messages or the Mandarin messages in English to see whether or not there is a threat. So this is going to take a while. And who knows, by tomorrow it might be 10,000. And lo and behold, within a couple of hours, it was already at 10,000 comments. And so that just gave me an idea of how serious these folks are going to take my issue. And that was the beginning of it. Um, Moving forward, you know, within weeks, because of the international media attention and all of the questions that were coming at them, the university continued to have meetings with me and, you know, linked me to a community safety officer about protocols or ways that I could keep myself safe when I'm traveling. And ultimately what they did was they gave me a walkie-talkie in case someone did come and attack, I could walkie-talkie the campus police to come help, which I could use my phone for. but. That's besides the point. So walkie-talkie is what I got. And the other thing was I asked for increased patrolling in my building. So because we're a part of the student union, we manage the whole student center. um, And that is also my working space. So we asked for more patrolling around the area. And that was sort of the support that I received from my university. And they promised that they would get back to me within a week or two. Two weeks later, they had no response. And then About a month and a half later, what they did was they gave me a breakdown of some of the comments just to say, 
okay, so we've determined that there are actually threats to your life. And they gave me some of the translated comments and they had a lot of death threats and rape threats that they translated and said that these are actually criminal offenses. And so gave me the option of taking this court a case to Toronto police. And I said, well, it took you a month and a half for you to determine that my life was in danger, but these students are still walking around campus freely and could attack any time. And so that was the situation that I was in with my university. However, moving on to Toronto Police, things didn't get really any better. After Toronto Police, I had to repeat my story again to them. I asked to see the report that the university gave to the police. They denied me of that request. And then moving forward, I was, you know, I met with the RCMP. I also had meetings with MPs in Ottawa and in Toronto. And I also had, I think, MP Garnet Jenis speak about my case in the Parliament Hill. But all of this happened, yet I still don't have any results or report a physical piece of paper that reads out what had actually happened in terms of an actual investigation by foreign affairs. So as of right now, my situation is like how it is for any other human rights activist within Canada who has been bullied and intimidated and has been attacked by the Chinese Communist Party or the Chinese embassy or by foreign influence of some sort. And uh, we've just been you know, asked to go from one entity to the other and then has been, you know, been pushed basically to all these other entities until the issue sort of dies down in media, I guess, is what people hope for. So you did make some mention of it a little earlier, but uh, are you aware of any other Tibetan activists or groups or people who are in support of Tibet who have been subjected to harassment and intimidation in Canada by pro-Beijing supporters? Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, when I was going through what I was going through, part of the reason why I was able to fight it and continue on was because I was aware of other scenarios that had happened within Canada. So many years ago, when I was still in high school, I had a university student at Brock University who wanted to take a flag to the International Student Festival, and she was denied to bringing her Tibetan flag to the festival. And that was a time when me as a teenager is reflecting about how our parents struggled so hard to move to Canada to finally be free and finally belong to a country and have some sort of citizenship. And then here there was another girl being denied to bring her Tibetan flag to our international student festival. And when we went to find out more about why, we came to find out that there was a Confucius Institute at the university and they had very strong ties. They were funding the international student festival. And so the story isn't, you know, uncommon. We know how Confucius Institutes and CSSAs exist within different academic spaces and then start to take up more space through funding and increase their influence and soon increase their influence enough to have a say in what students can bring, cannot bring and can talk about and cannot talk about. We've had multiple situations throughout our organizing experience in terms with Students for Free Tibet or our large-scale protests on March 10th, we would see counter-protests. Or when we go visit or when we go to enter talks of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, you would see counter-protests again. It's very interesting when you watch their counter-protests. It's very scheduled. You'll see them come at one time, be picked up by buses or dropped off by buses, 
and then they'll have shifts you know, like every half an hour you'll just see the front line move to the back and then the, the next line comes to the front and they have the same slogans and if you ask them any questions they won't answer any questions they yell at you and then they would move on and then when their shift is done they would be picked up by buses and all of their signs and all, all of their gear would be taken off so seeing these little things growing up I definitely was aware that what I was going through was not personal attacks about me and my capacity as a student president. It was something much larger and it was about something else. I've never seen a personal attack as mine in Canada, at least. It's the first time I'm hearing of it. But I also suspect that it is because I took up space, not just within the Tibetan community or our allied nation groups, but somewhere in the public and somewhere like an institution as big as the University of Toronto. So the title and the space that it was, I think, sort of resulted to the intensified attack on a person, a person specifically. But that's not just specific to Canada. We've had that happen at Cambridge, at Columbia. Academic materials are being erased from certain libraries of Ivy League schools. A young student, I think a 14-year-old who wants to play professional soccer in Australia was denied playing because he's half Tibetan. And simply because his name was Tibetan, he was denied access to enter the tournament. And there were clear signs that it was because of the Chinese government that he was not allowed to enter this international tournament, even though he was Australian and Tibetan. And so, you know, Within the Tibetan community spaces, it's not new for us to know about intimidation tactics and attacks from the Chinese government because we know that they're constantly watching and surveilling us. So do you have any evidence, that any hard evidence you can bring? Because I think that's something that many institutions are asking for, but something that activists come up short. So what do you mean by hard evidence, right? That's a question that I would pose to you folks who asked for it, because I would really question what the intentions are of entities that do question this, because I wonder if I wasn't a Tibetan, if you would take this more seriously. My experiences as a Canadian are often undermined because I use the word Tibetan Canadian. If we were to look at it from different perspectives as well, I think I have enough proof in terms of the messages that I've received. If the Toronto Police and RCMP took their job seriously and gave me a detailed report about the IP addresses of the individuals that gave me the death threats, the rape threats, maybe then we could track down who exactly was behind it and then maybe ask them questions or if not actually take serious action against these entities that were giving death threats. According to the Constitution, a death threat is a criminal offense. So why wasn't it taken seriously is a question that I could pose. And I would have hard evidence if the institutions and police supported me in finding that hard evidence because I can't find that hard evidence of who it was behind these intimidation or behind these threats if they don't track it down for me unless I'm expected to do that job myself where I track down my own people that are threatening me. It's, it's a bit of a vicious cycle, right? They want this hard evidence. You try to give them the hard evidence and then you hit a roadblock and then you're back to square one. And, you know, and the roadblocks so be- are being presented by these institutions, which is the problem for me, right? Because the people that I'm going to for support and the people that are asking me for hard evidence are the same entities. 
it is our Canadian institutions saying that we want to support you, tell us ways we can support you. And then it's, okay, well, for us to take this seriously, I need hard evidence. Then I've given you all of the information and then I need your support in finding that hard evidence because I, as an individual, do not have the power of going and tracking down each of these individual IP addresses. And I need you to put your resources into this, the finding out and giving me the support that I need to succeed so that I can also find out. However, that is not being done, right? Which is what allied coalition groups in Canada have been asking for to the Canadian government for many years. Even a hotline for all of the, all of the people that have been facing intimidation and harassment from the Chinese communist government in Canada. And I really wonder where the priorities lie within our Canadian government, because if we're not important, then who exactly are these politicians serving? It's an ongoing thing, and people have created reports, have gathered resources themselves to create reports, create recommendations, get together with different organizations that can speak up for them and lobby for them at a larger platform. And still, we are not listening. And so I really question when they come up with the question of, oh, where's the hard evidence? I'd like to question you. What are you doing to find that hard evidence? If you were in a room with the prime minister or minister of foreign affairs, what advice would you give them on this issue? I think in regards to any issue, the first step is to listening to your people, right? And really having a good understanding of who your people are. And to me, in my opinion, I would say all Canadians. And if all Canadians are truly your people, then you must listen to them and find out what are ways that you can support using the resources, using your leadership position to support these groups or support these individuals or support these organizations. I know that it's important to have priorities and to be able to manage those priorities are not easy. However, if there is a recurring activity of some sort, especially foreign influence, I would think that it is serious enough for us to pay attention. And many times, you know, I grew up with my mom always telling me that prevention is better than cure. And so being able to deal with these issues prior to it blowing up is a better idea than trying to find band-aid solutions after the cause. And right now, in regards to dealing with China, I would say actually it's a little late and we must act right away because of the current situation. Take a look at China and its growing influence across the world right now. It's time that we as Canadians start questioning these actions of the international community because each time we don't speak up, our silence is becoming a stance. And it's a stance of something that we don't stand for. It's a stance against human rights. It's a stance as a bystander. And we're not being part of the solution. We're actually being part of the problem when we are quiet. You can see how these issues are bleeding in to our Canadian lives and how the growing influence of the Chinese government is actually going to influence and start having a lot of ripple effects within Canada. And it already has. And there are so many other things like in our academic institutions, the foreign influence has continued to grow within community spaces. For example, just a year ago, what we had was a Tibetan organization that was created by Chinese individuals 
who actually faked and forged a prime minister's letter of support and Minister Hussein's letter of support. And not only that, they actually had members of the provincial parliament invited and also present, presenting awards as such at the event itself. So here we have members of parliament or, or representatives of our government, of various levels of government, present at an event where they are forging letters of the prime minister, even including his signature. And that's happening. And I don't see any big results or investigation being taken on in regards to that. It's sort of just been swept under the rug once again. I would say the time to act is now, and it's time for Canadians to actually stand up against the big bully. I think it's time for us to start taking on more action of creating a multilateral forum where we lead the conversation on ways that we can restore human rights back in China again. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. This was equally inspiring, fascinating, and heartbreaking to listen to. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Cheers.